Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode. And if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Welcome back. Here we're looking at the situation of psychoanalysis and the training of psychoanalysts in 1956. Beginning on about page 384 of the Creed, the English translation, and extending content up to 406. So some pages to cover. In the interest of bringing some clarity to some key conceptual work that Lacan is up to, at this stage in his career, but also that is central to Lacanian psychoanalysis. I want to direct your attention to pages 392 to 393. And there's a lot of stuff in this essay to discuss, a lot of it pretty ambiguous. But I think on 392 and 393, we can get some pretty good material to focus on. Let's begin on 392 with the paragraph beginning, A Psychoanalyst. A psychoanalyst should find assurance in the obvious fact that man is, prior to his birth and beyond his death, caught up in the symbolic chain, a chain that founded his lineage before his history was embroidered upon it. So what Lacan here is suggesting is a very obvious point, which is that the language that is native to you, the language that you grew up speaking, your first language, perhaps even your only language, the language in which you are fluent, really any language in which you are fluent, it was there before you were born, before you were thrown into it and asked to learn it, commanded to speak it instead of crying and so forth. It was there before you. It predated you. Your parents did not realize that when you were going to be born, you were going to be so special that they were going to invent an entire language that everybody in the community, whether that's the family, the neighborhood, the town, the state, the country, the nation, the world, would be able to speak it just in honor of you. No. That language, for me it was English, was there long before you were born. You were born into something that was there prior to your birth. And the second part of this passage, it extends beyond your death. Same with me. When you die, the language that you spoke for most of your life won't simply end. It will continue for as long as there are other people who speak it. So the language, and by extension the society, and the world into which you are born was there before you, and it'll be there after you die as well. This is what Lacan is getting at here on page 392. Continuing, he must work at the idea that it is in his very being, in his total personality, and it is comically put that man is in fact considered to be whole, but like a pawn in the play of the signifier. This is so even before its rules are transmitted to him, insofar as he ends up discovering them. This order of priorities must be understood as a logical order, that is, as forever current. 
So here again, we have this emphasis on what's cracking out there before you arrive, <clears throat> but also this emphasis on the rules being transmitted, the rules of language, of society, of what Lacan knows as the symbolic, being transmitted to those who will live by those rules, more or less, depending on one's clinical structure. <clears throat> How exactly are these rules transmitted to us? Now we can talk about culturation, socialization, linguistification of human beings and the like. I want to focus really though on the point at which we might realize that there are such a thing, there are such things as rules bound to a specific linguistic code that we are now asked to live. What does it mean? What is it, the experience of realizing this like? A clue comes in the next paragraph. No prehistory allows us to efface the cut brought about by the heteronomy of the symbolic. So heteronomy means dependence. It's the opposite of autonomy. Autonomy, self-auto, plus the Greek nomos, meaning law. If you're autonomous, it means that you're self-legislating. You make up your own rules. That's what it means to be autonomous. To be heteronomous is to be subject to the rules of others. The rules of others. You're, in other words, you're dependent to some other system, not of your own devising. That's the nature of finding your place in society and in the symbolic, even if it's to revolt against the place that was assigned to you by society and the symbolic. There's still this heteronymous relation to language, a dependence on language. And here Lacan says that this relationship begins with a cut. So how these rules of the symbolic are transmitted to us, what we now know is that the beginning of that transmission process a process that Lacan would call castration, that we've also heard referred to as alienation, begins with a cut. And this is something we need to figure out very carefully. What is the nature of this cut? And if indeed the beginning of our introduction to the symbolic starts with a cut, into what? does the first primordial signifier cut? To answer that question, I'm going to tell you a little story. Coming up next. Okay, the story. So, everybody watching this video has three things in common. At least three things. First, is that we are embodied. To be a human, to be watching this video, means to have a body. Everybody has one. To be born into a body doesn't mean that your body won't perish. In order for humans, when born into bodies, to survive, they require copious amounts of care from others. Now, you can hear that, hear that as care from mothers, but I prefer it to just be care from others. And almost always there is a primary caregiver. It can be a dad, as in my case with my kiddo, or it can be a mom, 
as in more heteronormative typical cases. It doesn't matter. It can be an uncle. It can be a grandparent. It doesn't even have to be a family member. It can be the state of California. It can be the foster care system. It can be the professional parent that helped you through your early days. The primary caregiver, though, is the human who keeps the infant human from dying. Infants, when born into bodies, are born into bodies of pure need. Their lack of motor skills prevents them from going to the fridge to get the food they need, pull, need pulling the blanket up when they get cold, changing their own diaper. All of this stuff to keep the human infant alive is stuff that's done by another person. That person we can just refer to as the primary caregiver. Now, the infant quickly realizes that this primary caregiver is key to them. Now, does this infant realize the third element that binds everybody on this call? No. What is that third element? You've already guessed it. In order to be a human, you have to be embodied. In order for that body to survive, it has to receive care. And in order for that body to remain human, it must inevitably perish, die. Death is the third element here. According to Lacan, the infant, the human infant, is very close to death, not because it's on the verge of dying, but because its birth and this period that some people refer to as the fourth trimester and beyond is a period in which the child very much resembles a dead thing. It can't move. It can't do anything. It's a fragmented body. Its lack of motor skills make it seem like it's almost in its death throes. When you look at the baby wiggling around sometimes, it looks almost like it's dying rather than learning how to live, is Lacan's point. The child realizes very early on that they depend on this other being, and they develop very quickly a desire for this person. And this desire, we won't go into how this happens, is insatiable. It's a desire for another person. In other words, another body. Desire is always hooked into the embodied form. And it is always a desire for another body, another embodied form. So the child quickly learns to desire the primary caregiver and cries about it and eventually learns to issue demands about it in order to get that desire met. Now, it's an insatiable desire for love, so it'll never be fully met, which is why the child will oftentimes ask for this, and then when you get it for them, ask for that, and then when you get that for them, ask for something different. What matters is not the thing you're getting for them, but the care that you provide when you show up with it, which for them is a demonstration of love. And because their desire for the primary caregiver's love, care, and affection is insatiable, it's no surprise that these requests or these demands follow back to back, end to end. Desire, as we know, is an insatiable experience, constantly reproducing new objects to desire. <clears throat> what the child realizes, though, and each of us did this, was that the primary caregiver isn't only interested in the baby. The primary caregiver has other interests. It can be another sibling that also requires care. 
it can be a job that requires its own kind of care because rent still has to be paid. It can be a little flat thing, mirrored in surface, a cipher to the child at first, a smartphone. The parent has other interests, other places where they direct their attention. And the child, although they lack gross motor skills and fine motor skills, has a very perceptive field of vision and a quickly perceptive, if not very good at interpreting, but at least an observational mind. It can see the primary caregiver smile at the smartphone. Can't do anything about it, but it can see their attention, in other words, divided between the infant in need and the smartphone in hand. Now, whatever that thing is that the infant imagines to be a competitor for the primary caregiver's attention, the infant quickly learns that its best bet is to identify with this thing, to approximate it, which is why little kids often like taking your phone from you. They're not trying to imitate you playing on their phone. They're trying to get your attention. Car keys. Yes, kids like car keys because they jingle. But kids also like car keys because that jingling sound is the signal that you are about to leave and take your attention elsewhere to go hop in a car after the babysitter has arrived and dip for work, for fun, but regardless without the child. So by taking your car keys and putting it down its diaper, the kid can identify with the other object that it imagines you're most interested in. Not just them, but also these car keys. And obviously, it's a way to keep you from taking off. It keeps your attention directed at the child. Not only are you like, hey, give me back those car keys, but now, at least from the child's imaginary perspective, you can't leave can't leave without those keys. And if the keys are in the diaper, the kid's got to come with you. You see how these things go? This imaginary object of the primary caregiver's desire has a few names in Lacanian psychoanalysis. We don't need to get into it. What we need to understand is the relationship that the primary caregiver has to it vis-a-vis -vis the relationship that the child has to it. The child thinks that by identifying with the object of interest, they can get their desire for the primary caregiver satisfied. So they approximate the desire of the primary caregiver in order to have their desire for the primary caregiver satisfied, at least at one remove, which is imaginary, but also the beginning of the symbolic so to speak. doesn't mean this is where the symbolic begins. It means that the imaginary starts to take on a tinge of symbolicity in this moment. Because what else does the imaginary object of the primary caregiver's desire symbolize but an opportunity for the child to get their desire for the primary caregiver's attention met? Here again, at one remove. And that one remove is a remove of representation, of symbolization. Now, the structure of this three-part relationship, 
this pre-Oedipal imaginary triangle between the child, the primary caregiver, and the imaginary object is as follows. The child imagines that the primary caregiver wants to have the object of their desire, the other object of their desire, the keys, the phone, whatever it might be. And the child, by identifying with that object of desire, hopes at some level to be it for the primary caregiver. So the assumption here, at least in the child's imaginary fantasy here, is that the primary caregiver wants to have that object and that by becoming it through identification, by putting the phone or the, or the key in the diaper, the child can in turn help give it to them in the form of themselves. So the primary caregiver wants to have the imaginary object and the child wants to be the imaginary object. This imaginary pre-Oedipal triangle is also mentioned in this essay. It's the one that we hear referred to on 386, the nature of this dyadic relation. It is dyadic, but there's also this third element, this imaginary object that converts this into a tripartite or triadic relationship. So with these three elements, we count three, but there is one more force, the key force, and ideally the most positive and productive force in the child's life. That's where we'll head next. Okay, we've been talking about imaginary triangles. Now I want to talk about symbolic squares how to square that triangle. The cut in question here on page 392 of the situation of psychoanalysis and the training of psychoanalysts in 1956, the cut in question that marks the beginning of the symbolic, or at least the child's introduction or induction into the field of language, society, order, law, normativity, and the like, the symbolic, this cut begins by the introduction of a fourth element, a fourth force or function in this imaginary triangle, turning it into a square. The imaginary triangle, if you want to get technical about it, is a pre-Oedipal imaginary triangle founded on a dyadic relationship. It is, however, also a or a proto-symbolic triangle, because the imaginary object, although thoroughly steeped in the child's fantasy, is still a representation of the child's desire for the primary caregiver, and as such, a signifier of sorts. It's a proto-signifier, it's proto-symbolic. The cut in question here is introduced by a fourth element, not the primary caregiver, not the child, and not the imaginary object. It's typically coming in the form of another parent 
or another authority, some other authority that the primary caregiver cites, resorts to. It can be a real person. It can be an imaginary person. It doesn't even have to be a person at all. This fourth element is oftentimes referred to by Lacan as the paternal function, sometimes the name of the father. It doesn't have to be a biological dad or even a biological male. It can be occupied by any third party. It can be the primary caregiver saying, wait until your father gets home and thus citing a third party. It can be the primary caregiver saying, wait until your mother gets home. In this case, the bio mom would perform the paternal function of being this third party authority to which the primary caregiver refers. It can be an imaginary person. What would Jesus think about you doing this? What would Santa think? Oh, if Santa finds out that you're doing this, you're going to go on the naughty list. It can be the Easter Bunny, Colonel Sanders, the Queen of England, aliens. It can be all kinds of third parties. It can be God itself that the primary caregiver calls up. What is the function of this called up authority, this third party? If it is performed adequately, and by that I mean according to Lacan, it will introduce a cut, the same cut that he's referring to here on page 392. And this cut will effectively cut into the imaginary triangle. And in cutting into it, it will introduce a gap, a space, some breathing room between the child and the primary caregiver. And the function of this cut is simple. It comes in to tell the child that the primary caregiver doesn't have the imaginary object and that the child cannot be it for them. So the primary caregiver doesn't have it and the child can't be it. The effect of this is fundamentally one of prohibition. The paternal function, whoever performs it, effectively moves by way of prohibition. It prohibits certain things. It prohibits the primary caregiver from having the imaginary object, and it prohibits the child from being the imaginary object. The child experiences the paternal function effectively as a no, as a prohibition as a thou shalt not. And look at the Ten Commandments. The lion's share of them begin with thou shalt not. It's a negation, the issuance of a no that produces a host of no things, eventually to be cast into the repressed orbit of the nothing. We can come to that later, but for now we're looking at this cut brought about by the heteronomy of the symbolic on 392. This cut, I've said, is functioning as prohibition, and it is equivalent to the signifier no. 
no matter what your first word was, it could be your name, it could be daddy, it could be mommy, it could be some version thereof, whatever your first word was, the first functioning of a word, the first function of a signifier in your language was no. Whether the word was no or not, it had a prohibitive function. We'll definitely come to that in a second. For now, this cut. The paternal function cuts into this dyadic-triadic relationship between the child and the primary caregiver and introduces a gap or some space between them. When Lacan talks about the name of the father, this is what he means. It's written all over 392 here. This stuff about lineage founded on embroidery and all this kind of, all right. The name of the father, it can be as simple as your last name, which you probably inherited from the paternal side of your family. Maybe not, but probably, because that's still a normative code. But one thing is for sure. When Lacan says the name of the father, you have to remember that in French, the word for name, nom, sounds exactly the same as the word for no, nom. N-O-M, name, in French, sounds exactly the same as N-O-N, no, in French. So the name of the father is not that challenging here to understand. It is the no of someone performing the paternal function. The name of the father is the no of the father. And it's a no because it has a prohibitive function. It serves a prohibitive purpose. Now, if this is done well, if this prohibition is kept 300, cool, calm, collected, hell, let's make it 400, consistent, four C's, if it is pronounced with a period at the end versus an exclamation point, the effect is what Lacan refers to as castration. Now, that doesn't mean that someone's physically cutting on the child or anything like that. It doesn't literally mean castration. It means an acceptance of one's dependent status. That's what he means by heteronomy of the symbolic on page 392. The beginning of the child's induction to the symbolic coincides with the paternal function in which the name of the father displaces the desire of the mother if you want to keep this heteronormative setup. You could say the name of whoever performs the paternal function displaces the desire of whoever performs the, the primary caregiver's function. That's a little more accurate. But in either case, you get this metaphoric displacement where the name of the father comes to stand in to offset the desire of the primary caregiver. It inducts the child into a heteronymous or dependent relationship with this world of language, of society, of rules, of law and order, known as a symbolic. And I say this because
society is based on rules and norms. And the basic function of a rule and a norm is to prohibit. It doesn't just positively encourage certain behaviors. It always, to some extent, at a foundational level, prohibits and places under erasure others. The basis for society is law and normative order. The basis for law and normative order is prohibition. That's how we get here. That prohibition is experienced as a cut, as a rupture in the child's life, as an automatic forking in a road that has only ever been singular up to that point. There are several ways that we can understand this. But the important part here is that something in this moment is cut out, prohibited, barred now to the child. And what I would like to suggest is that what is prohibited at this moment is any furtherance of life without prohibition. It's not that the child is having their primordial, uteromorphic, blissful, Edenic state subtracted from them, taken from them. Something they once had is not now rendered as lost or dropped out of them. That's a retroactive fantasy that can only be sustained within the field of the symbolic after you've already been inducted into it. In fact, Eden and the uteromorphic figurations that we imagine infancy to be, which I don't think is accurate at all. I think being an infant is probably a pretty terrifying thing. It's probably not blissed out. It's probably pretty damn scary. It's not something we once had that was subsequently lost. It's something that can only ever ha be had in the field of the symbolic as loss, as the experience of loss. It's not something lost. It is the basic experience of loss. It's a retroactive fantasy of wholeness that emerges in a world where we are cut and thus gapped, incomplete, fractured, divided, split is the word that Lacan often, often uses. We are split subjects. That's what the symbolic does. It splits us. One of the things that it does in splitting us is introduce us to a world of prohibition, of law, and of order. Now, the final word on this is about that no. You heard me mention this as punctuated by a period, not an exclamation point. That's what we'll return next. The no of the paternal function, the squaring of the pre-Oedipal imaginary triangle that we were just discussing, when done well, will be followed by a period, not an exclamation point. The no that initiates the child's experience of prohibition and marks their induction into the symbolic, according to Lacan, should be, as I said, kept 400, cool, calm, collected, and consistent. That means no ending with a period. If it ends with an exclamation point, that's a problem. A period 
that allows the no as an original prohibition, the beginning of the child's relationship to the law and thus desire, because desire and the law are about the same thing. Even in some areas, Lacan says they are the same thing. This no, if it's issued well, coolly, calmly, collectedly, consistently, will allow the child's relationship to law and order to develop on its own, apart from the child's relationship with the lawgiver. In this case, whoever occupies that paternal function. This is important. It's also partly why Lacan on 393 of this essay talks about this forgotten drama, this primordial drama, this inaugural drama of the killing of the father. Now, there are a few ways to read this. The way I want to suggest that we read it is a way that gets back to that period after no. We're on page 393, about a third of the way down with this killing of the father, which is not literal, it's metaphorical, and the inaugural drama of humanity. We can see that what he maintained thereby, Freud that is, was the primordial nature of the signifier. That treatment of no and prohibition is the primordial nature of the signifier. Lacan sometimes refers to this as the unary trait. It's usually marked with his use of the term the name of the father, which as we know is also the no of the father. The primordial nature of the signifier is a prohibitive nature, which is why I always say that the first word you heard, no matter what the first word you heard was, functioned as no because it introduces you into a world of splits, divisions, a differential system of significations, of ones and zeros, of presence and absence. That is what the symbolic introduces, is a world not just of presence and absence, but a world in which presence and absence are divided from each other. There's a third element here, which is the minimum distance between a present element and an absent element that allows them to remain distinct. And the multiplications just proceed from there. Being in the symbolic is about being with absence. And there's an easy way to understand this. I can look around this room and I don't see any elephants. But by just using the signifier elephant, the word elephant, I can put an elephant in this room. I can make present something that is absent by using a word for it. What I can also do is remind everybody by using the word elephant of something that they don't have, of something that they can only have by embracing a relation to its absence, namely an elephant. There ain't an elephant in your room either. But with the use of the word elephant, we can make a presence of that absence. That is something that you can only do in the symbolic. It is another reason why the symbolic is a field of cuts. Because it is constantly perforated by absence. The primordial nature of the signifier, that 
unary cut, that unary trait, that first notch in the antler. It had the function of introducing a cut or a gap or an opening into a world that really didn't have any before then. To the extent that we can even talk about a before then. That's a logical priority, an a priori or presupposed before. All we really have is life after Eden. It's the after that becomes our present. And we imagine that there must have been a before. We don't have any real experience or memory of that. And if you don't believe me, ask yourself when your first memory began. How far back does your memory go? Three years old? Four years old? Five years old? Two years old? However far back you can trace your memory, I guarantee that you were born a while before that. You don't remember that state of existence. You don't have any conscious memory of that lived experience. But you know it was there because you are here now. You know when you were born. You know when your first memory was. You don't have any recollection of the in-between. You presuppose it. You know it was there. In a way that you can only know something in an a priori, presupposed way. The primordial nature of the signifier as prohibition, as no, is represented by paternity. Now that's not talking about daddies necessarily. It's talking about the paternal function, which any person can occupy. It's a function, it's a subject position that anybody can be brought into, depending on the society. It performs a certain function, which is that of prohibition, of cutting into the imaginary triangle. The primordial nature of the signifier that is represented by paternity beyond the attributes that it accumulates, the link of generation being one part of it. So the fact that your last name connects you to other members of a family or of a generational sequence of people with the same last name, that's only one part of what the name of the father does. It's important as a signifier appears unequivocally in the assertion produced in this way that the true father, that is, the symbolic father, the father who performs the paternal function, whether they are your daddy or not, is the dead father. And the connection between paternity and death, which Freud explicitly highlights in many case discussions, allows us to see from whence this signifier garners its primordial rank. Its primordial rank is that of the first signifier, the primordial signifier, which functions as prohibition and no. The reason why and again, this is just one way of reading this. There are other ways to interpret what Freud is up here when he talks about the best father being a dead father. Is that the person who shows up and issues that primordial no, that prohibition, that introduces a gap or some breathing room between the child and the primary caregiver. Breathing room, by the way, that is one of the basic barriers against anxiety. 
without that breathing room, anxiety, to the extent that the subject is neurotic, is usually what will follow. The child needs some breathing room between themselves and the primary caregiver. That's this cutting in process that the paternal function performs. It gives the child the requisite breathing room to cultivate their own desire instead of living their life in terms of the primary caregiver's desire. Very important. That cutting in though should not be dramatic. It should not be vociferous. The no issued by the paternal function should not have an exclamation point at the end. The end of it. It should have a period at the end of it. That period, like the issuance of any good and reasonable law, makes the lawgiver impassive. Not wildly enraged, whether in a state of enjoyment or fear but instead somebody who passively, impassively, coolly, calmly, collectively, consistently says no. You see, if there's an exclamation point at the end of that no, the child will learn to associate the authority of the law with the might of the lawgiver. They will come to think that a law only has binding force insofar as it's backed up by the threat of violence. The parent who always says, how dare you, don't do that, I'm going to beat you, or whatever the case may be, scares the hell out of children. They obey not because they think the law is legit. They obey because they fear punishment from the lawgiver. A good law is one that can stand without the threat of force that the lawgiver could otherwise bring. This is why all Wild West movies, you have a lawless town, things are going south, it's a crazy world. The villains are in charge, the sheriff and the deputies are all in the villain's pocket, it's a lawless town, all the civilians are getting messed up. And out of the desert comes the lawgiver, the lawbringer, this Wild West hero, who shows up, regulates, typically falls in love with a child and or the mother, sets the town aright, kicks the villains out, killing most of them along the way, introduces law and order by appointing a sheriff who gives them the nod to say, I've got this from here, at which point the hero doesn't stay, doesn't settle down, Certainly doesn't become the sheriff. No, they leave. The hero rides off into the sunset, which is the best demonstration that the law that they have introduced is authoritative, sound, and reliable because it doesn't need the barrel of a gun to back it up anymore. The town has got it from here. A good law, like a good no, is one that can stand on its own after a while and doesn't require the barrel of a gun behind it. That's the reason why the hero rides off into the sunset. Riding off into the sunset is kind of like a metaphor for death. They go and they don't come back. 
not unlike when you die. So the lawgiver you see in these shows and movies is usually pretty cool under pressure. They are impassive. They are calm, they are collected, and they are consistent in their regulating of that town. And they don't sprint into the desert. They usually saunter into the desert. The horse is not heading out at full tilt. The horse is just trotting along, presumably on the way to the next adventure, hence the sequel. But metaphorically here, really on the road to death. So the good father is a dead father because the no that they issue is impassive cool, calm, collected, and consistent, enough for that law to eventually settle in as a reasonable law and to be introjected, for better and for worse, becoming integrated into one's superego, which becomes a new internalized and usually pretty damn sadistic lawkeeper. But the original lawgiver, that third party that cuts in, they get to leave now. Their job here is done so to speak. They pronounce the law as though they are dead. And once the law has been issued, the way is prepared for their own death. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.